Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Monica Pennick. Monica teaches design and design history at the University of Texas at Austin. This summer, we've published her book, Tastemaker, Elizabeth Gordon, House Beautiful, and the Postwar American Home. Monica, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So Elizabeth Gordon is a name that is probably not a household one for most of the people listening. Can you give us um, just a, a quick biographical sketch and also why it is that her life has made for such a completely fascinating book? Sure, sure. Well, Elizabeth Gordon is the focus of the story because she was the editor-in-chief of House Beautiful from 1941 until her retirement in 1964. But she has a really interesting background that brought her to this position. So she was born in 1906 in Logansport, Indiana, and she came from a very strict Methodist upbringing that seemed something of of a shadow over her life. Um, This shadow persisted until she left home in 1924 to attend college at the University of Chicago. Now, the funny story here is that her mother actually came as a chaperone, um, but eventually got involved in her own classes and left Elizabeth Gordon to her own devices. Is This was repeated by an acquaintance of hers when they were much, much older in life. But this story gives us a sense of who Gordon was as a young woman and how she got things done. So this story goes something like this. So Elizabeth Gordon walked into a Michigan, Ave- a Michigan Avenue sales office for automobiles. And she walked up to the sales manager and says, hello, I know how to increase the sale of your cars. I go to the university here. And if you let me drive your brand new white roadster on campus and around town, I will sell lots of these cars for you faster than you could do it yourself. And so the manager looks at Elizabeth Gordon, who was a tall and quite lovely, beautiful smile, and he shook her hand and said, okay, Elizabeth, come back on Monday and you can take the car. Well, the problem was Elizabeth Gordon didn't know how to drive. So she (laughs) called up a friend, told the friend what had happened, and asked her friend to teach her how to drive a car over the weekend. So she came back to the car salesman on Monday morning. She knew how to drive. She took the car away and for the remainder of the year drove this exciting white convertible roadster around the streets of Chicago. And it turns out she had enormous luck selling the cars to the sophisticated co-eds and the happy manager marveled at the wit of this of this amazing young woman. So I love this story. It shows how adventurous and persuasive that Gordon was from a very, very early age. And what an adept salesperson. She invented guerrilla marketing. So takes all of this. I'm sorry? She invented guerrilla marketing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So she takes all these skills and begins to parlay this into a career. Now, you know, However bold Gordon might have been, she was still bound by tradition. And her first job, actually, out of college, she was a teacher. But she didn't last long at this. And she very quickly moved to New York City, where she worked in advertising. She began to work as a freelance journalist. 
um, working on a variety of daily and weekly newspapers. And by 1936, she was beginning to work for actually a former advertising client, Good Housekeeping, which was, by the way, owned by Hearst, who would eventually own House Beautiful. So in this role, Elizabeth Gordon became a recognized authority on all things domestic. And in 1937, with co-author Dorothy Dukas, she wrote her first book called More House for Your Money. Now, this book was a tradition was in the tradition of domestic advice books or how-to books, and it was aimed at the American middle class homeowner or a prospective homeowner. But this book was typical Elizabeth Gordon. So it was one part criticism of contemporary housing stock. It was one part education and one part aspiration. And Gordon, cha Gordon tackled things in the chapters like how to buy land, how to get building plans, how to finance a house, how to furnish the inside. And Gordon and Dukas off operated from the premise that Americans needed help in their quest for good houses and that they could provide the right kind of help in the form of knowledge. And if American buyers knew enough, they could get a great house. And in fact, they could get more house for their money. So what I love about this book is you can hear Gordon's voice and you can hear her faith in the American consumer. And these two things would remain consistent throughout Gordon's entire career. And that's how she got to House Beautiful. So House Beautiful is something that I'm sure most of the people listening will have heard of. It's still in publication. Um, but in fact, it, it started in the late 19th century, um, nearly 50 years or something like that before Elizabeth Gordon became its editor. Um, how, you know, how did things change in significant ways when, when she took over at the helm from what it had been for, for decades to what it became under her editorship? Yeah, the interesting theme here is actually consistency. So from the founding of the magazine in 1896 through Gordon's tenure, which was 1941 to 1964, House Beautiful was a consistent voice for design reform and for good taste. So Gordon was brought on, and she was a perfect fit for what House Beautiful had been, and she only strengthened this message throughout her tenure. Now, I want to say just a tiny bit about House Beautiful in the 1890s because it gives a great sense of what Elizabeth Gordon actually inherited. So the magazine was founded in 1896 in progressive era Chicago. It, House Beautiful was one of many popular magazines founded in these years. And the founding editors, Eugene Clapp and Herbert Stone, were both self-styled housing crusaders. And they believed that their new publication could reform the world. They focused on residential architecture, interiors, and applied domestic arts, and they had a mission, and that mission was essentially to lead people toward good taste, toward utility, and toward simplicity in their homes. So this was very much a reform-minded goal. And it was tied, interestingly, to the arts and crafts movement, which was, of course, at its height in America in those years, thanks in no small part to House Beautiful's work in this period. Um, so House Beautiful became quickly an advocate for the arts and crafts movement in the United States and began to promote both the ideals and the aesthetic of the arts and crafts. 
Now, their interest in the arts and crafts is no coincidence because the magazine and its editors were in the thick of it because Chicago was, in fact, an important center of arts and crafts reform ideas. There were, for example, educational programs posted out of the whole house. And of course, in Chicago, many key designers in the arts and crafts movement were right there practicing. Most importantly, Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, Frank Lloyd Wright weaves in and out of the story of House Beautiful clear up to the time of Elizabeth Gordon and to Wright's death in 1959. Wright had such a long life and a long career, and he was involved with House Beautiful throughout this whole time. Um, until mid-century when he becomes a friend and ally of Elizabeth Gordon. So I think House Beautiful's long interest in the arts and crafts shows this consistency. It shows this interest in reform. And although the magazine had its ups and downs, including a move from Chicago to New York, and finally a purchasing by Hearst, which owns it to this very day, I think that consistency is the thread that runs through. The interest in reform and good taste and the arts and crafts and quintessential American designers like Frank Lloyd Wright. And that's what Elizabeth Gordon inherited, and that's what she built upon and pushed further than anyone could have ever imagined. Now, when she inherited it, though, the, the, the first years of um, her position as editor of House Beautiful coincided with the involvement of the United States in World War II, during which time, you know, the, the focus was less on how to buy land and build a new home and more on how to finance the war effort. Um, how did she accommodate the wartime reality within the editorial program of the magazine and the idea of, you know, a, a post-war future where people would go back to figuring out the, the best way to get the, the greatest house for your money? Yeah, so Gordon took over the magazine in the fall of 1941, and this was a really difficult time, both for magazines and the world at large. Um, this was just before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, but war had been underway in Europe for a good two years. And the popular press had been talking about the emergency in Europe and how this might impact the United States for all this time. So things changed dramatically in 1941, and the whole mentality of the country seemed to shift. The U.S. government started imposing rations on commodities and consumer projects, and as goods were diverted to the war effort, Gordon, as editor, had to begin to adapt her own running of the magazine, both in terms of her day-to-day -day operations and in terms of the kind of content that she wanted to publish. So an example of both of these, um, for her day-to-day -day operations, the, ma the magazine was subject to rationing, just like individual, um, individual Americans were. So Gordon was forced to keep her page count low. She had to have a magazine of under 100 pages. Mm. She had to use fewer photographs when film supplies were limited. And when cars and tires and gasoline were rationed and in short supply, she had to keep her journalists and her photographers at short range. So this all impacted what she was able to do. Yet among all of this, Gordon, like so many editors, kept this feeling of optimism. 
And what she attempted to do was help build what other historians have called the ideological framework of a world at war. Now, she didn't focus so much on the downsides, but on the future possibilities. So Gordon would run magazine covers and feature articles that focused on common wartime themes, like the home front war effort, like rationing and thriftiness. But she also started to look at things like housing for war brides and for returning veterans. So despite the seriousness of the situation, Gordon maintained this outlook that the future was going to be a better place to be. And because House Beautiful was in large part aspirational, and much of, her rhetoric, much of her rhetoric during the war years focused on planning for what she described as better things to come. So she was always editing toward the post-war dream, the dream of a better world, although she was bound by certain other circumstances. One of the things that I found um, particularly interesting in this story is the degree to which, you know, though she was focused on projecting this aspirational vision, she was keenly attuned to the specific interests and goals and likes and dislikes of her readership and did um, a lot of research into that. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about how she sort of revolutionized consumer desires research for the magazine? Yeah, sure. So Gordon really wanted to understand what her readers liked, how they wanted to live, why they bought the things they bought. This included everything from furnishings to paint colors to the architectural styles that they might prefer for their houses. So Gordon was in constant dialogue with architects and designers in these years to try to put her finger on what trends were. But in the early 1940s, right at the beginning of her editorship, she opened another conversation, and that conversation was with her readers directly. So she started to ask them, again, directly, what do you want? Why do you want it? Now, Gordon was certainly not the first to do this. So I'm not sure I would say she revolutionized, but she really pushed the envelope of what you could do with those kinds of questions. So her work was very clearly situated among other consumer desires research things that had been pioneered by social scientists and historians and marketing specialists. But Gordon wasn't really satisfied with the work of others. So she launched her own series of reader questionnaires and surveys. Um, Two of these are of particular note. The first is what, and this is a quote, this is what the headline ran in House Beautiful. The first is, quote, what people say they want. And the second was what the GI wants in his post-war house. Now, I love both of these because particularly the second was a poll or a reader survey that was actually administered in partnership. So this partnership was through Stars and Stripes, the military newsletter. And this did a great deal to accommodate or to register not just what women wanted, but what men wanted and what soldiers wanted for this post-war world in which they would return home to. So Gordon's strategies were engaging. She wanted to ask as many kinds of readers as she could 
to chime in on their likes and dislikes, their hopes, their dreams, their wants, and their needs. So she was trying to engage a very large and varied reader population. And she had this terrific strategy that was highly motivating. So most of her questionnaires and reader surveys were actually run as contests. So for example, with the GI study, she offered prize money for what she would consider the best answers. In addition to prize money, she would publish excerpts of the letters and the winners' names in the magazine. For the Desires Research Contest, which was another program she won, uh, that another program that she ran, she would ask a certain question. For example, what do you want in this kitchen and why? And so she would run a picture of a kitchen and then a set of questions and ask readers to respond. So participants could send in letters and they would talk about what they liked about that kitchen, what else they would want, and the participants were registered to win the contents of a new kitchen, the very kitchen that was pictured in the magazine. So this was a great carrot in front of her readers, and she got enormous reader participation through this. She sincerely was interested in their viewpoints. She wanted to bring readers into the conversation, and she used all the data that she collected. So she would take all this data and she would translate it into these feature articles that would talk about the best trends in living. And so this could have a domino effect. It would again impact the future for readers, but designers were paying attention manufacturers and retailers were paying attention to all of this. And so it had the effect of not only impacting individual likes and dislikes, but eventually impacting what designers designed and what retailers brought to market. Was it Gordon herself who would choose the winners of the contests that she ran? Um, you know, I think Gordon was pretty much in control of everything. <laughs> um, so it could have been a team effort, but I imagine her and her most trust, trusted staff people sitting at a desk choosing choosing the, the best answers. That's not something that my research has, has revealed, but that's yeah. how I imagine it working, just knowing how, how she was. Yeah. Deep magazine secrets. Um, yes. So something like um, the... the uh, climate control project, which was a, a big focus of hers for a while. Was that something that came out of this research or was that something that um, that she found elsewhere? You know, the climate control project was an editorial, a, a very ambitious research and editorial program. And it very much came out of Gordon's desire to know. She believed that knowledge was power. And she believed the more knowledge she could put in the hands of her readers, the better the design outcome. So in, in about 1947, Gordon launched this ambitious project that went under the title of Climate Control. And the project was eventually published in October 1949, but it actually has a much, much deeper history than that. And the history actually dates back to the very beginning of Gordon's writing career. So all the way back to 1937 with the book Morehouse for Your Money. In the 1930s, Gordon was already writing about homes and their ability to perform well under a variety of weather conditions. So she was concerned with performance. That was her term, building performance. 
So would a house be comfortable to its inhabitants in the winter and in the summer? Was it cool in the summer and hot in the winter or, or warm in the winter? So she was interested in what she called weather control devices. Now, in the 1930s, this was little more than insulation and weather stripping. Um, but weather control devices became much, much more sophisticated in the 1940s when Gordon launched the Climate Control Project. Now, from 1937, we skip ahead about a decade and we see that Gordon was involved with another early project that had everything to do with design with climate. And this has to do with what was called then the solar house. Gordon was involved with an effort sponsored by Libby Owens Ford, who was the manufacturer of double pane glass called Thermopane. So in 1947, or in the early 1940s, Libby Owens Ford launched a national campaign to promote their windows, and they wanted to look at how these windows could be used in the design of houses that could activate solar energy. So, for example, passive solar to heat a house in winter. So this company wanted to boost public knowledge of solar house design as a, as a thing, which, of course, in turn helped boost sales numbers for their new windows. So Libby Owens Ford asked architects from across the nation to, support, to, to submit a number of designs for solar houses. And they assembled a jury of 38 authorities who would select winning houses from amongst these submissions. Um, the idea was to build these houses that were selected, although that never actually happened. But these designs did get published in a 1947 book called Your Solar House. Now, the jury that was assembled included architects and educators and, of course, magazine editors. And guess who was involved? Elizabeth Gordon. So she served as an expert along her competitors, the editors from, for example, Sunset Magazine, Good Housekeeping, Better Homes and Garden, Ladies Home Journal, House and Garden, and editors from professional journals like Architectural Forum or Interiors Magazine. So Gordon cut her teeth on this Libby Owens Ford project and really became interested in design with climate. So she tracks a long history from her own work through Libby Owens Ford and the Solar House Movement, and this gave her important inspiration. So when she was editor at House Beautiful, launching all of these research in initiatives, she decided to launch her own in-house research initiative, and this became climate control. Now, what Gordon was doing here was looking at this history of house design according to climate. And she identified a big problem that was still current in American housing. And what Gordon thought was that most houses provided shelter for their owners, but most houses also lacked design characteristics and appropriate technology to mitigate a variety of weather conditions. So the bottom line for Gordon, again, was that houses couldn't perform and that houses were not comfortable in four seasons. So what Elizabeth Gordon wanted to do was use research to gather data, and this data could then inform design that would solve this house problem that she identified. 
So Gordon's big idea was to start gathering national climatological data. Now, this data had been collected since about 1935 by the U.S. Weather Bureau, who actually started this data collection for the benefit of the armed services. So what Gordon hoped to do was use existing data to advise Americans and American architects about how to build the perfect house for the place in which that it might be built. So she decided that she needed to assemble a team of experts. These included a climatologist, the former chief of the U.S. Weather Bureau, an economist, and importantly, Walter Taylor, who was at the time an architect and the director of research for the American Institute of Architects. So these scientists, the member of the AIA, combined with House Beautiful staff to launch this massive research effort. So the first thing they did was collected all of the climate data, and their idea was that they would map 15 climate zones in the U.S., and they would develop house designs appropriate for the climate in each zone, again, with the goal of maximizing human human comfort. So they looked at data that had to do with, for example, solar conditions or wind or precipitation. And then the team would determine what the best house would be. So they considered issues like siding and construction, construction methods, materials and mechanical systems, and the overall form of the house. So the result then was twofold. The result, the first result was a whole slew of data, which House Beautiful published in the form of charts and maps and what Elizabeth Gordon called portraits of climate data. This all ran in House Beautiful and it concurrently was published in the Bulletin for the American Institute of Architects. So this information was going out simultaneously to consumers and to designers. And this was meant to be knowledge and offer advice. So after they collected the data, Gordon's second plan was to design a series of prototype houses that would take this data into account. Some of these were to be built under the sponsorship of House Beautiful. And over the years, this actually did occur. Um, but not to the extent I think that Gordon had imagined from the beginning. So in the first couple of years, she published prototype houses, which were sketches and drawings. By about 1949, she was ready to have a built example and launched her first real built executed climate control house. And as Elizabeth Gordon always did, she had a label and she had a logo and she had a stamp of approval. So these houses would be published in the magazine with an image of the house and a floor plan and an assessment of how the house design fit the specific climate data to which the architect was paying attention. So there were several of these that were built, sponsored by House Beautiful through the years. Um, but over the years, from the program's launch in 1949, clear through Elizabeth Gordon's retirement, she also began to identify other houses that were designed by architects according to the climate data and according to House Beautiful's recommendations. She would feature these in House Beautiful and, again, 
give it the climate control stamp so that the reader knew that this house was designed with climate in mind, that it would be a comfortable and practical solution for the place in which they were living. So this was a huge, huge deal. Um, Gordon was had a quite successful partnership with the AIA and was became the darling of the building industry because this magazine, which was sort of conceived as a, a popular women's magazine, actually had collected useful data that was making a huge difference in how houses were designed in the in the 1940s and beyond. So big impact, um, and I think one of her biggest legacies. Little yeah. known, but one of her biggest legacies. I mean, it, it's it's just stunning, both in how forward-looking she was and how this story illustrates, as do so many in the book, how unbelievably savvy Elizabeth Gordon was at aligning constituencies, you know, that she would get the advertisers working with the designers, working with the architects, working with the building industry, and then all in communication with the consumer that had the potential to be competing felt that they were collaborating, um, is, is how it comes across in your book anyway, which is really just uh, a marvel to, to think about. Um, can you tell us a little bit about another, um, another sort of example in this vein? Yeah, sure. Um, so Elizabeth Gordon was really, really good at forming partnerships. And she was really good at ensuring that all the projects were executed to her standards, uh, which apparently was referred to in the industry as the Gordon standard. Uh, <laughs> but she was really good at maintaining this level of quality in all of the initiatives that she launched over the years. There's another small example in here that, that I think bears note, and this has to do with a collaboration that really speaks to her interest in taking design, her ideas of good design, and popularizing them on what I call cross-platform, meaning that she took her projects beyond the printed page. So she hosted design competitions and design exhibitions, and she commissioned design work from architects and builders. And she was instrumental in bringing new products to market. The best small example here was actually her work with none other than Franklin Wright. So in 1955, Gordon convinced Wright to design a mass market line of home furnishings to be sold to the general American public through department stores. This would be called the Taliesin Ensemble. Now, this kind of arrangement, this kind of partnership was totally new for Wright and totally out of character for him. You know, he typically only did high-end custom work, but Gordon got him to do furniture for sale, and she set up the whole show. She convinced Frank Lloyd Wright to do the designs. She secured partnerships with her industry friends who agreed to manufacture Wright's designs. For example, Schumacher to do wallpapers and textiles or Heritage Henryden to do furniture. Now, the manufacturers would market their own goods, but Gordon through House Beautiful had perhaps the strongest marketing campaign. Now, Wright's Taliesin line had a fairly short run in part because of relatively poor placement in department stores. The textiles and paints, however, were enormously successful. And in fact, Schumacher has just this year reissued Wright's designs to commemorate his 150th birthday. So this is a, an example of 
a small project that Gordon launched that impacted what was brought to market. It was it was a successful effort in its own right, but her longest and perhaps most successful initiative was the Pacesetter program. Now, this program was actually situated in the mid-century debate over the definition of modern design, specifically what was good modern design and what was good modern design for the American family home. So this question of what is good modern became particularly heated in the post-war years. And this turned into a battle, what I, come, what I have come to think of as a style war. So designers, manufacturers, retailers, critics, editors, and tastemakers design schools and cultural institutions like the Museum of Modern Art, for example, all put forth their competing definition of modern design. So among the competing version of modern design, two distinctive sides formed. And it was in fact Elizabeth Gordon who helped draw the battle lines here. So on the one side was the version of modern design that had its roots in 1920s European modern design. This line of modern architecture, often called the international style, was in fact codified by the Museum of Modern Art in their canon-making exhibition of 1932. Now, the post-war iteration of the international style could be seen in the work of Mies van der Rohe, who had come to the U.S. from Germany in 1938 and built famously the, the Farnsworth House for Edith Farnsworth could also be seen in the post-war work of Mises' disciple Philip Johnson, who, by the way, worked for the Museum of Modern Art as a curator on that 1932 exhibition that I mentioned. So Mises' Farnsworth House and Philip Johnson's own glass house, which was built in New Canaan, Connecticut, represent this line of modern design that was minimalist and functionalist. It was geometrically pure, technologically advanced, and the look of modern here was really this steel and glass box. So the same line of modern, the same version, was built on the West Coast as well and promoted heavily by an analog to Elizabeth Gordon, the editor and publisher of Arts and, Architect Arts and Architecture magazine, John Intenza. So John Intenza promoted a similar version of modern through his now iconic case study house program, which was launched in 1945 in Los Angeles. Now what John Intenza did was commission a set of young architects to design modern houses for average Americans. The range of architects that worked with him was tremendous, but Intenza insisted that all the houses were modern in some way or another. Most of the case study houses that Intenza promoted were very much the same as Mies van der Rohe's Farnsworth House, for example. They were, again, geometrically pure, minimalist, technologically advanced. So Intenza was interested in things like industrial materials. He was interested in the possibilities of standardization and prefabrication. 
And so from Intenza's case study program, we get these icons of modern design, things like Pierre Koenig's houses in Los Angeles, which have been famously captured by the architectural photographer Julius Schulman. Things like Charles and Ray Eames's case study house, which is playful and modern, yet it too was assembled from a kit of standardized parts. So this kind of modern, these images of modern design were everywhere at mid-century, although the houses actually were built in very small numbers. Interestingly, this is the version of modern design that is still talked about today in our time. It's taught in architecture and design schools across the US. It's featured in Hollywood films. And this kind of modern often shows up as a backdrop for example, in retail design catalogs like Design Within Reach. So Intenza, with the help of architects like Pierre Koenig and to, to some extent Charles and Ray Eames, sold America, or at least a segment of America, on this vision of modern. But Elizabeth Gordon was not convinced that this was good modern, and particularly that this version of modern design that Intenza was promoting was livable. So in 1948, she launched a competing program, and she launched this under the title of House Beautiful's Pace Setter House Program. Elizabeth Gordon conceived of the Pace Setters as an annual feature, and each year she would find or commission the best in modern American design. But the version of modern that Gordon chose to publish was very different from what Intenza, for example, was promoting. What Gordon supported was something that was softer and more livable. Now, some would certainly say that this was a more conservative view of modern design, and that's not, that's not untrue. Now, the pace setters were conceived as exhibition houses, as showcase houses, as, ideas, as idea houses, but they were also real houses, and these were built for real families. And Gordon emphasized this aspect that setters were for real families living real lives. Although they were prototypes, these were buildable prototypes. Now, the setter project was a typical Gordon project. So she saw within this project an opportunity. She used it as a platform from which she could critically assess the current and future state of domestic design. She used the setter program to advocate for what was new and good. And she used the Pace Setter program to essentially improve American housing as a whole. So what Gordon attempted to do with this program was define or really redefine modern design and modern living and position this kind of modern architecture as a frame for modern life. So this was really the, the opposite, the competing version of what someone like John Intenza would promote. So Elizabeth Gordon, on the other hand, championed the modernism of someone like Cliff May or Harwell Hamilton Harris. This was a sprawling and relaxed, informal version of modern that we think of as actually the ranch house today. Now, the important thing for Elizabeth Gordon here was that there was a link to the past. And this version of modern that she was promoting was actually inspired by a deep-seated American design tradition, which had its roots, in fact, in the work of someone like Frank Lloyd Wright. So these pace setter houses that Elizabeth Gordon was promoting were this idea that it was American, 
it was soft, it was livable. And Gordon was convinced that her readers and that all Americans, in fact, would choose this version of modern, her version of modern, because it was not standardized. It was not prefabricated. It was personal and it had very deep roots. And for Gordon, there was another important aspect here too. This version of modern, or so she would argue, correctly or incorrectly, was not seen as imported or international. So her version of modern, unlike Mies van der Rohe's or Philip Johnson's or John Intenza's, her version of modern was linked through her very directly to what she would call an American heritage. So this kind of modern that this kind of modern is what Gordon came to call the American style. And for her, this was modern, but it was not too modern. So the Pace Setter program was enormously successful for all of these reasons. The idea was good, and Gordon's implementation and Gordon's implementation was superb. So she commissioned the right kinds of architects. She partnered with industry to have materials donated for free in exchange for publicity. She managed to recruit everyone from Formica to General Electric to Alcoa to Schumacher. And all of these sponsored all of these sponsors would donate their building materials and of course get product placement in a paysetter house. And they would have the ability to advertise their products with the paysetter stamp right in House Beautiful. So Gordon organized the design, the construction, the fit, and the finish of these paysetter houses. And when they were completed, she opened them up for public tours. And these public tours were sometimes free and sometimes for a fee, and the fees were often donated to charity. But these tours were enormously popular. They were toured by tens of thousands of people, so we hear. Now, the second part of this, though, was that every single room was published in House Beautiful, and often over multiple months. So the House Beautiful pace setters generated, in some cases, perhaps a year's worth of magazine content, and, of course, all the adver advertising revenue that would come along with this. Um, so I'm to tell briefly the story of the first pace setter, because I think it offers the best story of the success here. So Gordon partnered with the designer Cliff May in Los Angeles to design and launch the first Paysetter project, which was published in House Beautiful in 1948. Now, this Paysetter house was really a model of the best thinking and the best living available at that moment in time. And again, we can think of this stylistically as a California ranch house. And in fact, Cliff May is often considered the father of the American ranch house. Gordon loved Cliff May's pace setter. She argued in the magazine very directly that it was livable and relaxed and informal. It had a pitched roof. It used natural materials. It was easy to live with. It was spacious and had an open floor plan. It was light and bright. It had vast expanses of glass. And it encouraged a healthy and social lifestyle with plenty of indoor and outdoor spaces and lots of room to entertain children and guests. And of course, it had all the latest domestic gadgets, everything from a walk-in freezer to a hi-fi stereo system. So this house, this pace setter, had everything the post-war family could want and need. But Gordon argued that it was still practical and that it was still affordable. So this was 
the attainable American dream. And people really bought into Gordon's version of these dreams. And something like the Pacesetter House from 1948 was built in the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of houses across the U.S. So that we see the Pacesetter using this first one as a model, this project was enormously successful. It launched Cliff May's career. And he writes to Elizabeth Gordon, and, and, and this is all in his archive, he wrote that he received hundreds of letters from readers who wanted to buy the floor plan, or if they couldn't buy the floor plan, could they hire Cliff May? And the answer, of course, was yes, they could hire Cliff May. <laughs> and in subsequent years, he ended up building at least nine derivatives of that original pace setter. And these derivatives were everywhere across the U.S., not only in California, but in Oregon and Oklahoma and Texas and Ohio. So what we see here with this pace setter is that Gordon and May, together with all of the partners who made this project possible, helped spread that version of good modern design that Elizabeth was so interested in promoting. Most of the subsequent pace setters, and the program ran through 1965, most of the subsequent pace setters had the same kind of philosophical underpinnings and often shared a similar family resemblance family resemblance in terms of style. And this is actually the kind of mid-century modern design that we see in suburbs across the United States now today, anywhere from Los Angeles to Dallas to Kansas to New Jersey. So I think a great example of her partnerships and her ability to leverage these partnerships and spread the word that she wanted to spread across the nation. So now a dozen years into her tenure as editor of House Beautiful, she has, um, you know, she's launched careers. She's established strong relationships with professionals across numerous industries. Um, she has a large and very attentive readership. Um, and she publishes an editorial that takes a strident, if not outright, combative tone. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So Gordon always seemed to have her finger on the pulse of the nation and would regularly and strategically adjust her editorial language to hit what we might think of as hot buttons. And this is exactly what happened in April of 1953. And keep in mind, this is the Cold War era. This was McCarthy era America. And in this tense and angry anxious and political moment, Gordon published her most famous or inform, infamous editorial ever titled The Threat to the Next America. So in this essay, she declares right at the beginning in this big pull quote, she declares something is rotten in the state of design and it is spoiling some of our best efforts in modern living. Well, that's something for Elizabeth Gordon was the international style. So she launches this editorial critique and it was scathing and it was clearly very alarmist. And the language, the rhetoric she used was very much rooted in the Cold War. She described this opposition, bad modern versus good modern. And to describe bad modern, she used words like conspiracy and mass hysteria and propaganda and dictator and cult and dogma and totalitarian. And on the flip side, to describe good modern, which clearly was the modern of the American style that she was promoting, she used words like freedom and independence, 
individualism, common sense, and democracy. So in this article, she set up this opposition and she called out these famous modern designers, people like Mies van der Rohe and Walter Gropius and Corbusier, and perhaps by association, someone like John Intenza and his case study architects. And she declared that all of these men were artistic dictators who led a cult of austerity and that their modern houses were empty and unlivable because they were industrialized and standardized and importantly, placeless. She called these this version of modern the hair shirt school um, because she said they valued appearance over performance. And she accused these men of thoughtlessly promoting the mystical idea that less is more, which in Gordon's view was simply less. Now, when she published The Threat to the Next America, it caused a huge controversy immediately. And many in the architecture and design community turned against her. So she received hundreds of letters to the editor, and the controversy was covered in other journals, including, for example, Progressive Architecture. Gordon was the subject of industry gossip at all the spring trade fairs, and she knew all of this was going on. So she had her detractors, but she also had a great many supporters who stepped up to her defense. So shortly after the threat to the next America hit the newsstand in, 1930, in 1953, she got a telegram, and that telegram read, surprised and delighted, did not know you had it in you, from now on at your service, signed, Godfather. Now, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Gordon didn't know who the godfather was, but it turns out it was Frank Lloyd Wright. And with that telegram, he publicly declared his support. Frank Lloyd Wright joined Elizabeth Gordon's side in the style war, and this was a pivotal moment. It helped Gordon set up an alliance, and she would use this alliance to its fullest for the rest of Frank Lloyd's Frank Lloyd Wright's life, and really for the last decade of her editorship. So she maintained Frank Lloyd Wright as an ally, and she had other allies around her too. It wasn't as if she lost her job. It wasn't as if she, there was a mass a mass defection of employees or anything like that. But it but it was it did it did offer a significant shift in the course of her career, um, and. When she retired, she continued to live for a long time outside of the world of architecture and design. Um, but then toward the end of her life, uh, there was some, you know, there were people that she had maintained contact with who continued to argue for her to receive some recognition for her um, lifelong body of work. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how, how that all wrapped up? Yeah, sure. So Elizabeth Gordon retired at the end of 1964 after 23 years at the helm of House Beautiful. And when she retired, she she had a number of big successes under her belt. The Pace Setter Program, the Climate Control Project, her two issues on the Japanese concept of Shibui, which is beauty, uh, the Taliesin Ensemble, all this wonderful stories, all the careers that she was able to launch. Um, in 1960, she received a few honors, including the Communicator of the Year and the Trailblazer Award. In the 1970s, she was knighted by the Finnish government for her reporting on Scandinavian design. 
but by far the greatest honor and I think Gordon's proudest moment came in 1987. So Elizabeth Gordon was 80 at this time, and she had been retired from House Beautiful for over two decades. But in 1986, two of her greatest allies, the architect Alfred Browning Parker, who was a Frank Lloyd Wright disciple and a, and a life friend of Gordon's, and Curtis Biesinger, who was a former Frank Lloyd Wright apprentice and former House Beautiful staff member, came together and decided to nominate Elizabeth Gordon for an honorary membership in the American Institute of Architects. Now, this nomination, even in 1986, was not without controversy. In fact, she had been nominated for and rejected three times before. And although she had been the darling of the AIA in the 1950s, especially after the Climate Control Project, members of the AIA, or so it perhaps seemed, had never quite forgiven Gordon for the whole threat to the Next America controversy. By the 1980s, though, I think the AIA had a new perspective. They had begun to recognize the wisdom of Gordon's criticism, if not the wisdom of the rhetoric that she chose to use in 1953. The AIA recognized Gordon's contribution to American design and American life. So this final bid, this final push in 1986 was successful. And in 1987, Gordon was conferred as an honorary member in the AIA. And this, note, this, this honor only served to confirm what so many had known for decades. And that was House Beautiful under Gordon's leadership had been a significant voice for architectural influence. Gordon was a critic and a catalyst for design reform. She was a tastemaker whose initiatives and crusades really did shape the present and the future of American design. She was an amazing person. It's an amazing story. Monica, thank you so much for writing it down for us to read. Thank you again for taking the time to talk to us today about Elizabeth Gordon and this extraordinary chapter in the history of American architecture and design and magazine publishing. Thanks so much for having me. The book again is Tastemaker, Elizabeth Gordon, House Beautiful, and the Postwar American Home. It's available in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.